so I've been thinking about Lila Cheney. Isn't that just kind of a default state? Well, point, but the thing is, she hasn't shown up in the Marvel Universe in ages, has she? Is she even still alive? Oh, yeah, she's fine. She popped up in Captain Marvel last year. Dude, what's she been up to? Uh, you know, cavorting around the galaxy, stealing stuff, rocking out, breaking engagement. Wait, engagement? Like to Cannonball? What? No, Cannonball's with Smasher. They have an adorable demon baby. Imperial Guard Smasher? Didn't he die? Well, she in this case. And like four Smashers have died. It's a job, not a specific person. Oh, wait, then who was Lila engaged to? Oh, Prince Yan of Aladna. Prince who of what now? It's a planet she visited early on when her powers first manifested. Monarchy, strict rules of succession, really weird societal mores. Ah. And they talk only in rhymed couplets. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 101 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Dude, I am so not used to this whole, like, three-digit episode number thing. Right, and I feel like no matter what we do this episode, it's going to be fundamentally anticlimactic after 100. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny you should say that, because the arc we're actually covering right now is, uh, not... A favorite arc of many X-Men readers. You know, it wasn't a favorite of mine. In fact, I would have said it was my, well, maybe second least favorite arc of the Simonson run of New Mutants until I came back and reread it. And I hated this the first time I went through it. And this time it's really grown on me. It's still flawed, but it's a lot more interesting than I ever really gave it credit for as a kid. You know, I'm kind of in the same position. I think part of it for me, and to clarify, what we're talking about here is the infamous Gossamer arc of New Mutants. I think for me, it's just that there's a lot to really grab onto as far as gender and what Louise Simonson is or is not trying to say about it. I am looking forward to getting to that. But first, we should probably recap what's been up in New Mutants because it's been a long time since we have visited this book. Previously on New Mutants. It's not quite the same. It's not. Just previously on X-Men sounds better. But you know, what can you do? So we've got a reduced team. Right now, I think Cannonball, Magic, Mirage, Sunspot, Warlock, and Wolfsbane. Magma is in Nova Roma with her family. Karma is out looking for her lost brother and sister, and Cypher is dead. Poor Cypher. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think he this... doesn't mind. He's dead. Well, true. I think this is a good move on Simonson's part to have a smaller team because the types of stories that she's trying to tell are, I'm not going to say smaller in scope exactly because there's big space nonsense going on, but I think the writing benefits from that kind of more intimate cast. We get to know each character a little bit better. Speaking of characters, there's one person we haven't mentioned because he's not technically part of the team, and that is Magneto who's running the school and sliding slowly back into supervillainy with the aid of the Hellfire Club and his growing frustration with his inability to protect his students from a world that hates and fears them. Well, and from themselves because they keep breaking his grounding and breaking his rules not to use their powers and going off on semi-suicide missions, which, you know, I can't fully blame him for his frustration. They're teenagers. I think it would be fair to include them in the umbrella of a world that hates and fears them. <laughs> That's probably true. You know, it occurs to me, a lot of people forget that Magneto was the headmaster of the New Mutants for, I think at this point, far longer than Xavier was. Oh yeah, by a wide, wide margin, especially considering that Xavier for the first chunk of New Mutants was actually a brood queen. Yeah, he was. Oh man, that's complicated. We talked about that a long time ago, as oh, you may Charles remember. Xavier. Yep. And so Magneto has also started wearing his red and purple outfit again, which is probably not a good sign, as opposed to his like fuchsia tunic sort of thing. It's true. The red and purple is much, much better looking. It does not have an enormous white M on the chest pointing down at his crotch, which I also appreciate because that's just not a design detail I can really stand behind. I'm, I'm OK. I guess I won't dress that way then. I mean, it's right there in my initial, too. 
So that's been going on with Magneto. Now, we also have a lot going on with one of the new mutants herself, Ilyana Rasputin. Speaking of slides into supervillainy, Ilyana has been gradually losing control of Limbo. It's been infected by Warlock's techno-organic virus, and the demon Sim is gaining more and more ground, kept only at bay by Ilyana's soul sword, which she's got planted in the ground in Limbo, which means she doesn't have access to it. She is also having a really rough time because she got to watch her brother murdered on national television. She did, yeah, and that's where a lot of her frustration with Magneto comes from, that he wouldn't let her go and attempt to help or find Colossus, and a lot of her frustration with the world in general, and she's starting to think a lot of the darkness in Limbo, which she sees as reflecting the darkness within herself. Yeah, she is herself getting more and more corrupted, either by what's going on in Limbo, by her current state of mind, or both. The last big thing she did was go off and basically try to kill Forge for killing the X-Men. She didn't succeed, he talked her out of it. But she broke her scrying glass, and the corruption in Limbo spread a lot further as a result. Oh yeah, it's, it's really bad times. Everything is terrible for Liana Rasputin. I mean, it always has been, but like, especially now. So this is a Lila Cheney story, and I feel like we should maybe touch a bit on who she is and where she's coming from, because we haven't seen her in this book in a while. So we first met Lila back in New Mutants Annual Number 1, Steal This Planet, which is of course one of both of our favorite stories, where she was an awesome rock star lady who was attempting to sell the Earth as revenge for it selling her when she was a kid. She is basically the intergalactic super thief Joan Jett of the Marvel Universe. She is amazing, she is wonderful, and she is currently romantically attached to Cannonball of the New Mutants. Now, Lila has appeared, along with the New Mutants, actually, since the last time we covered her in our show. That was in an issue of the short-lived Spellbound series, and it was basically a standard Lila story. You know, there's a show, some aliens attack, the New Mutants, and in this case, Spellbinder, fight them off, that sort of thing. But that's not super relevant, so we'll skip over that. So Lila is also a mutant. She's a teleporter, but she can only teleport massive, massive distances. She's got two primary homes, one in London, one in a Dyson sphere out on the edge of the galaxy. And since she can only teleport long distances, she kind of has to do an Ilyana Rasputin thing. Like, Ilyana has to go to Limbo and then to her destination. Since Lila can only teleport long distances, if she's going somewhere else on Earth, she goes Earth, Dyson sphere, elsewhere on Earth. So, speaking of Lila, this week we are looking at New Mutants 67 through 70, and we start with Sam Guthrie begging for permission to attend a Lila Cheney concert. And I actually really love this scene. He's talking to Magneto, of course, who is the one who would give said permission. And this is the first time we've seen Magneto not furious in, like, so many issues. And unfortunately, also the last time we'll see him for so many issues. You know, he's still furious. He's just kind of reining it in because Sam is making a very good case for why he will be super good and not use his powers and probably not actually get any more of his teammates killed this time. We hope, maybe. Magneto, at this point, like, I am so done with Headmaster Magneto. Like, it's gotten to be such a sort of tired thing. He's like a Peanuts adult. You know, just doing the womp, 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 and then the kids just go off and do whatever they were going to do anyway? Basically, yeah. But his deal is that the kids are absolutely never allowed to use their powers without explicit permission, which is a terrible idea in a universe where supervillains attack all the damn time. And I mean, I can see what he's getting at. He doesn't want them to go out on unnecessary missions like they did with the whole Bird Boy thing where Cypher got killed. But, you know, I can see him getting a little extreme. He's always been an extreme kind of guy. That's Magneto. That's his jam. Well, part of the reason for that is the Mutant Registration Act. And he figures that not showing their powers in public will keep the New Mutants at least temporarily safe from that. The New Mutants themselves think that these rules are basically bullshit because, again, they're teenagers. Man, I gotta say, Brett Blevins is not my favorite artist, but I really love the way he draws these kids when they're just hanging out. Yeah, his mastery of body language is awesome. I mean, I remember we talked about a scene ages ago where Ilyana's like sitting in a computer lab procrastinating and she has sort of a pencil between her nose and upper lip and it's just this perfectly teenage thing. And we see a lot more of that here as the New Mutants are watching a live recording of this concert. They're not there, just Sam is. And just, you know, hanging out, being kids. 
Sunspot is bouncing a basketball on his forehead, and they are, as they do, complaining about Magneto's draconian policies, specifically the idea that Sam shouldn't be able to use his powers, because as we all know, Lila, being as she is an intergalactic bandit, gets in all sorts of entertaining alien scrapes. One of the kids suggests that, well, if that happens, then Lila can just save Sam, and Bobby, Sunspot, will have none of that. She can save Sam? Danny, where are your finer feelings? Women are the weaker sex. Men should save them. So, here's the thing about this arc. I have a lot of trouble telling what its intentions are. And that really massively affects my read of it. Because, for example, with this line, like, I read this based on their dynamic as Bobby just fucking with Danny. Basically just trying to get a rise out of her. Because that's their friendship. That's how the two of them work. They push each other's buttons, yeah. Right, on purpose. On the other hand... With the more exaggerated versions of the characters we've been seeing, and especially the directions they get exaggerated here, I don't know. And I'm really, really curious. This arc is so much about gender and about attitudes toward gender in men and women, well, or boys and girls in this case. And so you could absolutely read what Bobby's saying as totally sincere, because he is portrayed as this sort of chauvinist in this arc. Or at least as foreshadowing. And the reason he is portrayed as sort of a chauvinist in this arc, the thing that sets that off is a character whom we now go to meet. That is Gossamer with a Y. We first met Gossamer actually at the end of the last arc. There was a little brief aside, sort of a next time on New Mutants, where we saw this character who's got all white skin and maybe is wearing clothing and maybe isn't and just doesn't have primary sexual characteristics, it's hard to say, imprisoned by a big spider monster named Creatively Spider. Also spelled with with a Y. There's a lot of that in this. You know, if you want something to sound cool, spell it with a Y. And I'll spell my name D-A-R-Y-A and be crowned Miss America. (laughs) Uh, I guess I could spell my name with a Y, but like that's actually a pretty standard spelling of Miles, so that wouldn't be cool at all. That would just be uh, different and not exciting. I mean, people spell it that way when they email us a fair lot. That's true. I could do M-Y-L-Y-S. It could be just J-Y-Y or just three Ys. Y-Y-Y and Y-Y-Y-Y-Y. Why explain the Y-men? No, this is just getting complicated. Well, no, no. You can just re- you can just replace vowels because you've got you've got more to work with. And Y is a sometimes vowel. This is getting confusing. Y is a sometimes vowel. <laughs> Cookies are a sometimes food. But only when you spell it with a Y. Cookies are a sometimes vowel. Okay, we digress, as we so often do. So uh, No, no, yes. I feel like that was important. There are, again, <laughs> there are the gratuitous Ys in here crack me up because you, you see them all over the place, but rarely like two at the same time with affiliated characters. So I'm wondering if this is a space thing, like the Shi'ar and their gratuitous apostrophes. Or that one alternate universe in Captain Britain where everything had K's instead of C's. Or Earth without J from uh, Nature of the Beast. It could be any of those things. Do you ever feel like our brains are so full of Marvel knowledge that we've become entirely useless in any other context? Hey, look, my reference was not Marvel. I guess that's true. I, I, can, make gratu- I, can, ma- I can make obtuse references to all sorts of useless things. Anyway, Gossamer. Let me tell you about the Apollo program, Miles. <laughs> Which is to say, anyway, Gossamer. Uh, Gossamer's not a part of the Apollo program. What she is, is she is an alien who's this sort of elfin, uh, conventionally attractive, all-white woman. She's very World of Two Moons. She is. She looks very ElfQuest. And I mean, Brett Blevins has always had kind of a Wendy Peeny feel in his art. Like, the way he draws everyone is the way that Wendy draws elves. But that's especially evident here. Spider himself is sort of an exaggerated, super spiky alien with an inappropriate number of legs to his name. Maybe spiders with a Y have only six. He's really more of an insect, isn't he? He is. Yeah, he's one of those false spiders. Mm-hmm. They exist. That's a thing. There are a number of other reasons he is a false spider. He has very little in common with spiders. You know who he reminds me of, though, speaking of people with artificial spider-like qualities? I see where you're going with this. Mojo. 
Uh, yeah, I can see that. So Spider with a Y's deal is that he's a member of this alien race without emotions. The only emotion they feel is greed, which is not exactly an emotion, but you know, whatever. So instead what they do is they distill other living things. They like squish them and turn them into this vapor that they inhale to experience other emotions vicariously. They're also very analytical and very avaricious. They're wildly inconsistent is kind of what it boils down to because they don't have feelings when it's convenient. Like the emotions thing... The bottled emotions thing mostly sort of seems to be an occasional affectation or a plot conceit. And I do want to say, though, I appreciate that the secondary theme of this particular arc is that emotions ruin everything. Feelings are boring. Kissing is awesome. We learned that from Dinosaur Comics. I mean, kissing is kind of not awesome in this arc, actually. Feelings are boring. Kissing is terrible. Everything is terrible. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. Now you understand New Mutants. <laughs> Everything is terrible, the New Mutant story. Okay, so Gossamer is Spider's prisoner. He basically owns her and her family. He is all about acquisitions, and he is all about amassing resources, many of which take, you know, sentient humanoid form. Gossamer is one of those resources, and he's holding her family hostage. Another one of those resources, one he's just acquired through a shady mortgage deal, is Lila Cheney. So you remember how uh, she mentioned in her first appearance that she had been sold by Earth? We never really found out much about that, and we still don't find out a whole lot. What we do find out is that Spider bankrupted the organization and or entity that owned Lila, which meant that now he owns Lila and he's come to collect her. That owned Lila or that owned her contract. That is a critical difference. And I want to say, again, I don't know if this was intentional, but Lila's situation in this arc is such a direct point-for-point -point allegory to contract issues in the music industry that it seems to me like it has to have been deliberate. I would assume so. This is an arc I would love to talk to Louise Simonson about if we can ever get her on. Yeah, also ideally like an entertainment lawyer. We could have a four-person episode. Perfect. The ethics of the space music industry. <laughs> but this is something worth reading up on. I don't know a lot off the top of my head. I think it's something that's been most publicly visible lately in context of Kesha and her lawsuit, and previously in context of the musician Poe, who is awesome, by the way, and wrote my personal Madeline Pryor theme song, which I will expound upon at great length once we get to Inferno. We're putting so many things off till Inferno. I mean, I know we're already going to do a bunch of Inferno episodes. I wonder if we'll have to do even more. Right. It's going to be like three parts and then errata. <laughs> the appendix. It could be like Tolkien. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. The Silmarillion. How would you even do that with... Uh, the I'm not... Simmerillion? I don't know. Simmerillion? Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I love it. It really, It's really bad. I'm really sorry. So Gossamer escapes while Spider is sleeping. She sort of pulls out of her collar thing. And Spider wakes up pretty quickly, realizes that she's gone, and sort of has this debate with himself. Should I let her go? Should I not? Eventually, after inhaling some fumes of generosity, because you remember uh, that whole... Magnanimity. Magnanimity, yes. Better uh, word. He decides, it shall have its little outing. And when little Gossamer, all fluff and feathers, tugs at the end of its tether, I shall reel it back and crush it in my poisoned fists. I do not buy this dude as dispassionate. He talks about how he only feels greed and that's it, but he's, like, full of emotions. He is. I, I think he's just lying a lot. I, I think so. to himself and to others. He's in a state of denial. Now, the folks he sends to pick Lila up are the accountants. Which I freaking love. I do too, and I love action bureaucrats in general. They are my archetype of choice. But I think I love these guys in particular because they pull my Pratchett feels because of the auditors. I can see that, although they're not really much like the auditors. These are much more hands-on than the auditors. That's true. The auditors are functionally immaterial. That's their deal. And so there's a big fight, and, you know, of course Lila makes like it's part of the concert because that's what she always does because she's Lila and we love her. Well, and because she gets abducted by aliens like every third show. It really does seem to happen an awful lot, doesn't it? To be fair, she does steal an awful lot of their stuff. <laughs> that's true. 
And as this is going on, the New Mutants are, of course, watching on television. And Bobby Sunspot is just furious because Sam has promised not to use his powers. And here's this big action thing going on. And Sam can't help. He can't even defend himself. Bobby goes into Sunspot form, charges toward Magneto's office to demand that he change his mind. And the other New Mutants go, no, 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 Bobby. Why don't we just do what we always do and sneak the hell out on our own? Yeah, speaking of things that happen pretty much every time. but You first, would think they would learn, like, ever. But first, they do listen in at Magneto's door. He's on the phone with Emma Frost, mentions something about power neutralizer, to which I don't believe ever actually comes up again, and that gives them all the ammunition they need to say, once again, screw Magneto, we're gonna do our thing. Clearly, he's out to get us. Clearly, he's just finding another way to, you know, rein us in. He's not our real dad. So the new mutants on the way to the Lila show, of course, have to briefly stop into limbo because that's how magic's powers work. Well, first to the attic to grab their graduation costumes, because you can't go into battle unless you look really doofy. And there's this scene of them changing in Limbo. Now, we've talked a lot before about how Brett Blevins' art style does tend to sexualize female characters more than fits the story. And we focused specifically, I think, mostly on Ileana with regards to that. And this Limbo bit has a scene that really, really, really bothers me. Yeah, so they're changing in Limbo, and you know, we see a lot of the New Mutants in their underwear. To be fair, it's somewhat equal opportunity. It's Roberto as well. And there's a scene where Warlock has turned himself into kind of a privacy shield for Rain, since she's very modest, so the other New Mutants can't see her change. But the way this is staged, Warlock is facing the other New Mutants, blocking her from their view, and framing her for the reader's view. And she's in her underwear, and it's just, it really, really bugs me. First of all, Rain's kind of young. We try not to sexualize her. <laughs> You're going to keep referencing that community line forever. It's a really useful line in context of a comic about teenagers. True. Second, again, we've talked about how you can do nudity and undress right in this book and how you can also show teens being sexual without sexualizing them, which I think is a really important line. Again, I'm going to point back to Bob McCloud as someone who does both of those things very, very, very well. He's the first artist on New Mutants. Yeah, I'm especially remembering that scene where Mirage is swimming naked in the lake, and it's just not a thing. It's not sexualized. Right. And Blevins runs in the opposite direction, and here he's specifically doing it in a context where it's very clearly indicated that the character herself is really uncomfortable with being seen that way. Like, she's literally uncomfortable changing in front of her teammates, and she has the privacy screen up. The fact that we're behind it has this sort of titillating, oh, we're seeing something we're not supposed to see feeling. But it's creepy. It's really goddamn creepy. And it's especially creepy because it's a 13 or 14-year-old. What's also creepy in an entirely different way is Limbo. Now, the last few times that the New Mutants have been in Limbo, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse, which is something I will say Brett Blevins conveys beautifully. He does creepy monster stuff in his cartoony style exceptionally well. It's a good juxtaposition of, you know, a style that typically is comforting and fun and subject matter that really isn't. Yeah, I think I would like Blevins much, much better on, like, old-school EC-style horror comics than I do on this series. That would be pretty rad. Now, Rain notes that Limbo seems much worse, to which Ilyana replies, That's because I get worse and worse. Rain, I thought maybe letting Forge go, among other things, would help, but I was wrong. I can't escape it. What I find really interesting here is that it's Wolfsbane, who previously was the one who was the least comfortable with Ilyana, aside from maybe Sunspot, who consistently in this arc is coming to comfort Ilyana, coming to say, no, you are still human, you are still okay. You know where that shift really happened? Hmm. Cypher's death. I think you're right, yeah. When Doug died, at that point, Rain became a lot more sympathetic to magic. Yeah, and their stance became much, much more one of solidarity. But it's a transition that I, I very much buy, and it's one that, that is all the more touching for the fact that 
we know at least with what's coming next that it's kind of ultimately futile. Yeah, everybody's doomed. Everything is terrible. It's great. Now, Liana isn't entirely correct. It's not just because she's getting worse and worse. It's because Limbo is basically in a state of open revolution aided by the techno-organic virus that it's been infected with, which is still spreading. Yeah, and we'll come back to that a lot more going forward. But in the meantime, the New Mutants do head to Lila's show, which is just, you know, carnage and chaos, and Sam's just sitting there punching aliens, not blasting them. Because he promised not to use his powers, and he is a good kid, and the New Mutants unfortunately arrive just a moment too late, as Lila is teleported away with a power dampener on by the accountants. And Sam is bemoaning the fact that he can't do anything about it. So Roberto points out, well, you know what? You promised you wouldn't use your powers during the show. And since everyone has run the hell away, the show's probably over, right? You can totally use your powers now. Oh, Bobby, you munchkin. I love the way that works. Clearly a thief of my level would know to retroactively check for traps. As they're about to head out to save Lila, Gossamer appears. She looks waifish, tragic, miserable, in need of rescue, and collapses immediately on Bobby, who is always happy to play the macho savior. She has brought a small ship. She begs the New Mutants to come with her to help her save her family. Meanwhile, Spider, with a Y, expounds villainously about how he wants Lila so he can distill her emotions and that he's sent Gossamer to entrap the New Mutants so he can get theirs too. Gossamer, of course, doesn't know this. And the New Mutants agree to come with her. But I do love the way that this is portrayed artistically because we're going to see a lot of gender stuff going on in this arc. That's kind of the thing of this arc. And immediately there are the boys, Cannonball and Sunspot, sort of comforting and doting on Gossamer in one panel, and the girls, Magic, Mirage, and Wolfsbane looking on very suspiciously from the next. They're set up as opposed forces immediately. To be fair, Magic is suspicious of literally everyone right now. I don't entirely blame her. And so, yes, they all head to Limbo again to try to reassemble Ilyana's scrying glass. Now, this is a sort of magical tool she has that can track people or concepts or places or whatever that was broken in her battle with Forge. This time they want to use it to track Spider's ship because they need a fix not only on the location but on where it's headed so that they can teleport to it rather than to, you know, the empty space where it was immediately before. That would be such an ignominious end to this arc. Let's find Spider and then they're just in space and they suffocate and die and the series is over. Ilyana is able to reassemble the scrying mirror to a degree. It's just sort of a few shards floating in the rough same configuration they were in. Just in time to get a glimpse of the ship and then a manifestation of the Dark Child. Now, the Dark Child is Ilyana's demon self. The last time Ilyana saw this version of the Dark Child, it was an illusion created by Mirage to jar her out of her fight with Forge. This time, I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't know if it's some kind of a pure magical force that's conjured by her fear itself or if there really is this other darker Ilyana that's become part of Limbo? Well, we've seen them split more than once. And as Limbo spirals further and further out of control, it doesn't stop reflecting her. And so the idea of Limbo independently manifesting this part of herself that she's afraid of that is much, much more closely attached to Limbo than, you know, Ilyana Rasputin as a person kind of makes sense to me. Like, I completely buy that. Now, Ilyana is super bummed by all of this. She's just been getting more and more depressed and more and more angry over the course of, I don't even know how many issues, certainly since the fall of the mutants. And once again, we see Rain come to her aid. Now, since the scrying glass shatters when Darkity Darkchild shows up, they decide they're instead going to just teleport to the space yacht that Gossamer stole and get that itself to Spidership, which seems like a good plan. Once again, they briefly deliberate letting Magneto know what's up, you know, leaving a note saying, gone into space back by dinner. But they decide that no, he would just get in the way with his mean grown-up rules like, please don't go start a war in space without letting me know first. Damn kids, seriously. They also have the excuse of, we don't have time, which, come on, teleporting takes like four seconds. Now what they do have time for, as the space yacht is flying towards Spider's ship, is a fashion show. 
Well, clearly, while she was only on the team briefly, the New Mutants have learned a thing or two from Kitty Pride. Just that what you do when you go into space is get the ship to make you wear new costumes. Yeah, although Kitty Pride's fashion show thing where she was like Darth Vader and stuff, it's really hard to compare to it that. It's so much more awesome. And this is also on Gossamer's initiative. She is excited about the possibilities with this ship. She takes uh, Rain and Danny off to go get fancy new costumes. She also gets a fancy new costume, which is a little bit baffling because she just seems to just put it on. So that sort of implies that she was naked before, but she couldn't have been because humanoid and comics code maybe she was just wearing a really fancy body stocking it's very thing. unclear and very it was confusing kind of shimmery with like full gloves built in look they do things differently in space they do and they also do things differently when they're drawn by brett plevin sometimes mm. uh, but regardless what gossamer does is sort of our first glimpse of how she interacts with other characters because she starts immediately subtly turning danny and rain who are of course best friends against each other i read this kind of differently so Gossamer is really single-minded. What I'm seeing here is her trying to curry favor with both of them. And when Danny doesn't buy into it, she immediately hones in on Rain and decides that, you know, the thing to do is to keep Rain with her, or push Rain away from Danny. She's not going into it trying to push them apart. That's just the direction that she takes when her original plan doesn't follow through, which is really kind of Gossamer's MO throughout this story. I think so, yeah. And Spider, who's watching all this, you know, doing the good supervillain, like, arm visible in front of Monitor thing, talks about to his underlings or to himself, it's unclear. How Gossamer's species, this is kind of what they do. They're all about sowing this kind of dissent and manipulating everyone. Yeah, they basically do the apple of discord thing. And Gossamer is not just trying to bond with Rain, however, because she later does meet up with Sunspot, who, of course, has been infatuated with her from the start. He's talking about how angsty everything is, how he's never told anyone, but he found this letter that Xavier wrote saying he was going to be a failure and everybody thinks he's going to be a supervillain and life is just terrible. And Gossamer feels otherwise. You're strong and passionate and used to getting what you want. On my world, those are important assets in a male. What else would any female want in a hero? She's telling him exactly what he wants to hear. And this is the part that got me thinking, like, okay, what's the statement about gender in this story? What's Louise Simonson trying to tell us about gender relations? Because you could certainly read this as talking about how patriarchy pigeonholes men into these destructive concepts that they feel like they have to live up to or else they're less masculine and thus less valid. But I don't know if that's what's going on. I read this somewhat differently from how you did. I don't think it's about the boys at all. I really? think I think it is specifically about the female characters and how they relate to each other. I mean, obviously, it goes both ways. But Gossamer, to me, reads very specifically as a critique of a very specific type of femininity that's very heavily socialized and then immediately penalized. Huh. So the true villain of the story is gender essentialism. And also a spider. Check. And as Gossamer is talking to Bobby, you know, she leans in to kiss him and Rain walks up behind her and we see Gossamer leaning over Bobby's shoulder and winking at Rain. And again, this is something that we read totally differently. Yeah, I saw it as Gossamer kind of showing her power in front of Rain, saying, hey, look what I can do. Look at the power I wield over men. And I saw it more as a, boys, am I right, moment. Because again, at this point, at least, Gossamer is still trying to curry favor with Rain. She's still got Rain kind of firmly under her thumb. And she's trying or it seems like she's trying to bond with first with rain and danny and then just with rain over you know this kind of overt manipulation that this is the thing that we have in common that we can do together and that's actually kind of what i want to talk about with gossamer because she is very very much characterized in a way that i think you didn't seem to hone in on at first and for me is very very much a specific thing in teenage girl dynamics yeah i mean obviously growing up that wasn't something i was really exposed to myself and you see a lot of discussion and you see more open discussion of this now which is really good because it's a really fucked up nefarious thing 
which is the girl who basically gets ostracized from groups of girls because of the way she interacts with or is seen as a subject of interest for boys. And then basically because she doesn't have a lot of other choice place to type. I can see that with Gossamer. Yeah. Yeah. It's a specific and gross and obnoxious and kind of horrific pigeonhole. And it's very, very much about, you know, the ways that patriarchal society effectively pits women against each other and defines their value in terms and context of competition for male attention and affection. And Rain is starting to fall into that trap herself. Now, she's still sort of gussied up in a way that vaguely resembles Lila Shaney. Well, the- sort of. She's wearing a pink dress, and Lila was also wearing pink the last time she saw her. Like, Rain sees this as, oh my god, I look like Lila. I don't really see it. She looks like Rain. She's wearing an enormous poofy pink party dress. To be fair, Gossamer does give her a Joan Jett-style wig, which does look a lot like Lila's hair. She only gives it to her after Rain has already made the Lila connection from the dress, though. And Rain is excited to show this to Sam, hoping that he'll be attracted to her. Now, this is weird because we just saw Rain sort of romantically involved with Cypher, which started in Simonson's run. No, that was pretty much one-sided. He had a crush on her. It wasn't mutual. She's always always kind of had a thing for Sam. Well, regardless, yeah. I mean, it was the first time we'd seen her in a focal romantic role, even if the intention was more Doug's than hers. And here we see her really focusing on her attraction to Sam in a way she hasn't since the first time Magma showed up, like dozens and dozens of issues ago. Yeah, Rain's relationship with femininity and performed femininity is so fascinating because she's younger than the other girls, like significantly younger. And she's also been raised in this very, very, very repressive environment and context. Like she comes across very much as kind of a kid performing this by mimicry. Mm -hmm, I would agree. Including, to some extent, I think, romantic attraction. I mean, I'm not saying it's not there, but like you see her starting to obsess about like this is something that Mirage and Amara and Ilyana joke about continually. And Rain has always been sort of a little bit outside of or never quite connected to. And so part of what she's doing here feels like, you know, genuinely sort of what's going on with her. But part of it very much feels like her sort of trying to perform, again, the role of girl in the way that she's trying to learn to do and then supposed to. And I think that's part of why she goes to excitedly show Sam how she looks in hope of catching his attention. Now, he, of course, is completely distracted by Gossamer because, you know, that's kind of what she does. She is interesting to men. Rain goes and runs off, and this is where things get really interesting, because Danny, who doesn't trust Gossamer at all at this point, intercepts Gossamer on Gossamer's way to find Rain. Danny figures Gossamer must be doing something nefarious, and indeed the art really does make it seem that way. Yeah, Gossamer tells Danny that she should go and comfort Rain by manifesting Rain's greatest desire. Danny is initially kind of horrified by this, but Gossamer sort of manages to influence her into it. We've seen that Gossamer has some kind of vague mind control powers. She can at least bend people to her whim. She actually reminds me a lot, both visually and in that regard, of Ariel from Fallen Angels. It's interesting how it's portrayed artistically, because Gossamer, as she's starting to put the psychic whammy on Danny, I'm pretty sure that's what it's called, all of a sudden she's in shadow and her eyes are glowing bright yellow and they have no pupils. And Danny doesn't think that Gossamer's made her do anything, but we, the reader, notice that the little spear that Danny wears as a pendant, which she keeps manifested so she doesn't accidentally use her power elsewhere, disappears, which means her power has in fact been used. And it doesn't take us long to see what it's been used on, despite Danny's complete ignorance of it. Man, so what you said about the art with Gossamer, and in combination of what I was talking about earlier with those dynamics and sort of the gender dynamics, actually kind of reminds me a little bit on the nose but of the Jessica Rabbit line, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. You know, I think that's Gossamer in general, because what we'll find out is that this behavior, these tendencies are inherent to her species. 
She doesn't necessarily want to do things this way. This is just the only way she knows how to do things because that's what she's been raised with, the expectations that are there around who she is as an entity. Yeah, it's her culture and it's her power set. And man, what happens here with Rain? Of course, Rain's greatest desire at this moment is for Sam Guthrie to be interested in her. Not just Sam Guthrie. Sam Guthrie dressed as the Disneyest prince of all Disney princes. Red cape and tunic and everything. And he talks about how he's realized that his relationship with Lila isn't what he wants. What he wants is Rain herself. But what's interesting here is that... Rain, you know, she's excited that Sam's interested for a moment, but then she realizes, wait, his desire for me is going to make him cheat on his girlfriend, which means I'm driving him to this. And she feels horribly, horribly guilty, which, oh man, this kid, even when she's getting exactly what she wants, she can't accept it because she's worried it'll hurt somebody else. And because this arc is all about the social fallacy of penalizing feminine sexuality. Absolutely. Like, okay, so this arc, I don't think I'm understating by saying it is largely reviled. A lot of people just hate this arc. And I will agree, it's heavily flawed, especially the last issue. We'll get to that. But there's just so much interesting stuff to chew on that for me, that does kind of redeem it to a degree. Well, I mean, we're specifically relating to this material as people whose jobs it is to deconstruct it. I, again, felt really different about this when I first read it. And I think part of it is a product of the fact that I was not much older than the characters at the time and that, you know, the things that they found gross and iffy about Gossamer were things that I also did because I wasn't really looking at it, you know, with that critical lens. Some of it, I think, is that, again, it's really hard to tell what the takeaway is supposed to be here, like what's being criticized. The way we've both read it, the way we interpreted the characters was so heavily mediated by our personal lenses and by our experiences as teenagers and our experiences interacting with, you know, other boys and girls as teenagers that, yeah, it's really hard for me to tell what Simonson and Blevins were actually setting out to do here and what they were setting out to say, which again, actually kind of makes it more fun because there's it's, it's very, very open to interpretation. And so Rain, you know, she is running away from this fake illusion Sam. He's following her and bumps into real Sam. And Rain is mortified because she quickly realizes what's going on, that Danny must have used her powers. And she also quickly realizes that if that's the case, everybody is now seeing that what she really wants is Sam. Her crush is there for everybody to see. It's just obvious. And she just looks pitiful. And she's furious. She turns into a wolf and jumps on Danny, accusing her of setting her up like this, of doing her best to humiliate her. Bobby is able to pull Rain off Danny. Danny realizes what's happened, uh, you know, turns and smacks Gossamer. And immediately they have to put those interpersonal differences aside because the ship is in imminent peril. They have entered hostile airspace and they're being told that they need to show their papers or they will be immediately destroyed. And so Danny uses her powers to create what the alien who's talking to them most wants, assuming it will be the papers. And in fact, fake Prince Sam disappears, making Rain feel even more humiliated. And the custom agent informs them that no, they will be fired on immediately because it turns out what he most wanted was not in fact, customs papers, it was money, it was a bribe. And so they have attempted to bribe a customs agent and they are in even bigger trouble than they were, which brings us to New Mutant 69, Bad Company. Now, I got to say, Danny's power at this point in its new form has sort of almost become an analogy for the way the New Mutants themselves work. It's just the sort of diving in heedless of consequences and with no real sense of what the outcome is going to turn out to be, just hoping that those good intentions are enough. Absolutely. You know, I would love to see Mirage, back when she had her powers, hang out with Longshot for that reason. 
Oh my god. That would be fascinating. Give them a mini series. They would bounce off each other very entertainingly as well. And the Possibly themes would be literally, great. because Longshot just kind of is basically a human Super Bowl. And so, short version, Spider with a Y is watching all this, and he doesn't want the new mutants to get blown up because he wants to inhale their emotional fumes, which, boy, that sounds really weird when I phrase it that way. Yeah, that sounds extra creepy, man. <laughs> it does. And, I can smell your feelings. And so the new mutants land the yacht on Spider's space station planet thing. And very quickly, I mean, they're in bad shape emotionally. Rain is still humiliated. Ilyana is moping about how evil she is. Danny's furious at Gossamer. The boys are going gaga over Gossamer. And Danny ultimately runs off on her own. Ilyana is drawn out of her reverie by how miserable Rain is because Rain is the one who reached out to Ilyana when she started turning into the dark child form. And Ilyana kind of tries to do the same thing here to basically tell Rain, look, you can't just wallow. You got to go on. You, you got to do your own thing. And Rain will have none of it. She just turns into her wolf form and runs away. Fortunately, turning back into her wolf form gives her a psychic line back to Danielle Moonstar, whom Rain conveniently reminds the reader at this point has a psychic pipeline to animals. And they discover that Danny has been attacked. So the new mutants spring into action, teleporting to where Danny is by way of limbo. Now, Liana's been getting more and more screwed up, so at this point, she just says, fuck it, and she draws the soul sword to bring it with her, which is basically damning Limbo to being entirely techno-organically absorbed. And remember, she and the soul sword are linked to Limbo, so the fall of Limbo is going to kind of affect how the soul sword functions. We see that in play almost immediately as she dives into battle against a robot, cuts it in half with the soul sword, and it immediately becomes this weird, twisted, demonic thing. And I love this because she cuts this monster in half, this robot in half, and it's a torso stump, I guess, turns into this monster. It, like, grows a monster cartoon face and starts eating people. It starts eating other of the aliens who have been attacking Mirage. And this is one of the reasons that I enjoy the hell out of Brett Blevins in this era in a lot of ways, because as Inferno hits, as we start seeing more and more of these weird cartoony monsters, his style, that juxtaposition of innocent cartoonishness and absolute horror is going to be beautiful. Speaking of teams fighting among themselves, Sam and Bobby are now coming to blows over Gossamer. Yeah, they've both been attempting to save her as this fight wraps up, and they start just beating the hell out of each other like cloud of dust with fists and feet sticking out style. And Gossamer feels great about this whole thing. She turns to Wolfsbane and Mirage. You see how they fight over me? This is the way it should be. It proves my value and precedence over you beyond any doubt. I am the dominant female and you must obey me. I order you, rescue my family. Now. Just as she was starting to get sympathetic, now she's super terrible again. Yeah, she's super terrible because she wants to save her family. So this is the thing about Gossamer. Her actions are awful. Like, she does a lot of really not okay stuff. And she's doing it because it's the only way she knows really to interact with people. Like, she, again, comes from a culture where people just sort of manipulated each other. And given that this is the New Mutants, probably all she would actually have had to have done was ask. But she doesn't realize that. I want right, to blame patriarchy she, again. I think it's all patriarchy's fault. I mean, I think that's a fair assumption to make, just sort of as an umbrella rule in absence of evidence to the contrary. It's, it's a good blanket statement. You know, so even here, she's doing this. It's like, the I am going to do this nefarious thing and look at me and I have manipulated you into position. Rescue that adorable puppy. It's like, dude, we were going to do that anyway. Why'd you have to be all terrible about it? Exactly. You know, she's working from kind of a fundamental mentally altruistic place she just is so stuck in sort of the ends justify the means logic now warlock has been getting more and more creeped out by this entire thing again he's not affected by either her powers or the effect of the other gender of his species from her powers and he talks to Ilyana. long ago self heard about creatures like gossamer but hoped never to see one they are rare mainly because they rarely allow others of their kind to survive 
And that's all Yana needs to hear. She's being more and more furious. She's already super frustrated with her own situation. And she slashes her soul sword through Gossamer, revealing something. Revealing this really amazingly awesome monster. It's hinted at as Gossamer's true or at least potential form. We're going to find out that it's more of the latter. But I gotta say, I really, oh, I love these monsters. I love the way Blevins draws monsters. If only he could just do monsters instead of sexualized teenage girls. I would like this book so much better. That would be way better. Also, how awesome would this have been if Gossamer had just looked like that from the start, but still done the same things with the same responses? <laughs> right. I feel like she would have been almost more effective if she'd been this like gigantic, terrifying, toothy, sort of semi-plant insect monster creature, and everyone had still been just like throwing themselves at her feet. I think that would have been so much cooler. That would have been a very different story. Now, Not really, though, because the thing is, her powers don't come from how pretty she is. They come from the fact that she's got this sort of semi-eldritch manipulation. Oh, maybe. But regardless, Gossamer, she's mortified at this. And Ilyana, as her rage starts to cool, as she sees Gossamer's reaction, Rain tries to convince her to turn back from the Dark Child, saying, dude, you know, rein it in. Rain said, rein it in. There we go. And uh-huh. Ilyana can't. So Ilyana's messed up because she's stuck as the Dark Child. Gossamer's messed up because everybody's seen this monster form. And I really like what happens next, which is that Sunspot stands up for Gossamer. You know, I think that shows a little bit more depth to him, even seeing that she is maybe not a pretty girl and maybe instead a horrifying insect beast. That flaming monster, or whatever it was the sword revealed, I sometimes feel like I have one of those inside me, too. Look, it's not Gossamer's fault that she's the way she is. You can't blame people for their biology, or how their culture teaches them to behave. And maybe if we help her, we can teach her to behave better and turn her powers to good. Which is kind of the new mutants in a nutshell. I think it really is. Yeah, their that mission statement. That and tragedy. Their mission statement about helping young people way, way, way back when, they're actually kind of doing it here and there. And later on, we can make her a really unflattering and culturally dubious costume. <laughs> that too. And, and then we'll run away and get someone killed. <laughs> Damn it, oh, new, new mutants. mutants. I love you. So they all reconcile. I mean, Gossamer does seem to be genuinely penitent, having realized that maybe the way she's been behaving isn't okay. And so they decide, yes, they are going to rescue Gossamer. Gossamer's family, and they fly to the Skeksis Castle from the Dark Crystal. It really is. Wow. It totally looks like it. Yeah, they can't teleport because Limbo's overrun at this point, the Soul Sword having been removed. But that's okay, because again, we get to see the Skeksis Castle. We do. Now, as they are going off to this grand final confrontation, poor old Magneto has decided to take action on his own. Magneto has gotten a call from Emma Frost at the Hellfire Club, who is asking him to join her in New York in light of certain disturbing recent events. And Magneto, who has realized that his students have once again snuck out without his permission and are probably off having horribly dangerous adventures, which will get them killed and or somehow hurt the cause of mutants at large, makes a big decision. He puts on his helmet for the first time in a very long time, and as he flies to New York, all I have ever wanted for mutant kind is peace and prosperity. I thought I had found a better way to achieve my goal and to shoot my old violent ways. I had hoped to find solace as teacher and protector of the young. But they refuse to be safeguarded. If they are on Earth, I will find them and protect them actively in the way that I know best. And again, this is a transformation we've been seeing coming for a pretty long time to the point where when it happens now, it, it very much feels like a logical conclusion rather than a sudden shift. This brings us to New Mutants number 70, the appropriately titled Self-Fulfilling Prophecy. And the first prophecy that gets self-fulfilled, Magneto heads into New York and is immediately attacked by a fire escape come to life. And because he's wearing the helmet, again, we saw this before in the X-Men vs. Avengers miniseries, he immediately reverts to Silver Age Magneto. 
Back, back, monster. Yield, I say. You face Magneto, master of magnetism. Oh, there are things you can always count on Magneto to do, and one of them is declaiming grandiosely at inanimate objects. Although it's animate in this context. Well, yeah, because of all the weird Inferno stuff that's starting up, things are getting animated. But it's just so wonderful. He's like, all right, I'm really pissed off. I'm super serious about everything. I'm going to put on my helmet and yell at a fire escape. Yeah, this is a man who is like one bad day away from writing Surrender Dorothy in the Sky with iron filings again. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And so he does head to the Hellfire Club, uh, changing magnetically, I suppose, into a white suit. I guess he's given up on his whole, I'm going to wear my own stuff thing. Yeah. Oh, or it's not Wednesday. Or it's not Wednesday. And it's interesting when he gets there, we'll go more into this later, but it's very clear immediately that Emma Frost, the White Queen, is taking his side against Shaw as Shaw starts to mock him for losing track of his students, and the inner circle starts to wonder if the white side is being played against the black side. I mean, like, Um, yes, because literally anything that Emma Frost is involved in in the Hellfire Club involves her playing everyone else against each other so that she can take power, because that's what she's good at. So that'll be a big deal later, but in the meantime, we have the New Mutants trying to fix everything in the Skeksis Castle. And boy, do they not succeed. So they are they are immediately captured by Spider with a Y who is dangling Lila from ropes because he is nothing if not committed to his theme and immediately breaks into a villain monologue where he reveals to Gossamer that he's been manipulating her from the start. As you know, little Gossamer, I am a collector of bodies and of souls. Is, it, is that close enough to be a drink? Uh, body and soul? Yeah, I'm gonna say so. But it's weird because this dialogue, okay, so this last issue, for one thing, it's got to fill an artist, Terry Shoemaker, but it just seems rushed in general, like the dialogue. Speaking of drinks, I totally forgot to mention in context of, I think, either 68 or 69, we had a chessboard cover. So uh, you're on your second of the episode if you're playing along. Yes. But yeah, some of the dialogue here just seems so lazy. Like, as the new mutants are imprisoned, they each try to break out of the electrified cage in turn and fail. As each does, Spider introduces them and gives us a brief summary of their powers. Ah, Rain, Wolfsbane, the shapeshifter, a passionate creature. There is little there but raw feeling. And, ah, the bossy mirage. Perhaps you should have used your power to conjure yourself some non-conductive gloves. And, ah, Ilyana, the magical dark child. What right have you to call me, monster? Like it's an ah name of character montage. You know what this feels like? It feels like lazy video game boss dialogue where you've got a shiftable or interchangeable party. It kind of does, yeah. And it's weird because, you know, the first three issues of this arc They're massively flawed in many ways, certainly, but they're really interesting, and there's a lot to sink your teeth into, and this fourth issue just doesn't seem that way. This fourth issue is just incoherent. It loses almost all of its internal causality and logic. The characters sound bizarre. I wonder if maybe it was just really rushed. That would be my but assumption, it's, yeah. It's just the the, the drop-off in, in quality and consistency is amazing here. And so, for instance, the way the New Mutants are freed is that Gossamer, who's of course been imprisoned, mentions that some members of her species can do this thing called the minor death. Wait, like orgasms? Uh, presumably not. Uh, to escape shame. And so it's implied that like this will somehow kill her or something, but what really happens is she pulls her cloak slash wing slash whatever over her and goes invisible and punches a bunch of guards. Well, all we see is that she goes invisible and a bunch of guards get hit by something. Bobby somehow magically knows that what she has done is pull her wings, which are also kind of a cloak because she doesn't seem to be able to fly around herself, which has somehow turned her invisible and maybe made her start to fade from reality. I don't know how he knows this. I don't know if that's what she's actually done. I don't know how he manages to find her and unpeel her wings. And why the hell she couldn't just do that herself? I don't know. But, you know, this is the kind of shit you can get away with when you spell your name with a gratuitous Y, I guess. Yeah, this is the power of the Y. Why why do you think I changed my name, man? You can't work a Y into Rachel. That's a good point. That would be hard. But this right here, I think, is where Gossamer actually does start being interesting. Oh, Bobby, I was lost elsewhere, but you brought me back. Only you shouldn't have. 
this is all my fault because I am as I am. And this right here, like, okay, now she's a New Mutants character. Now she feels like she should be in this book. Because she's racked with guilt? Yes, exactly. We're really being mean to the New Mutants today. Well, so is the plot, so it's okay. Yeah, fair enough. And so after this, again, she's being remorseful, so the New Mutants renew their trust in her again, and they burst into the final boss room, which is to say where Spider has Gossamer's family hooked up to a bunch of machines. Now, they don't look like her. What they look like is enormous, weird cocoons. As it turns out, Gossamer is basically a nymph of her species. She is a juvenile, and her species goes through a number of transformations one of which involves, you know, these cocoons that are made of insanely valuable threads, but turns them into something enormous and dangerous. Lila mentions that these are creatures who, in the form they're growing into, destroy solar systems when they hatch. And so the New Mutants attack, of course, and because this is the way stories work, this is exactly when they hatch. Now, Spider had planned to have his guard accountant dudes kill these creatures as soon as they were born, thus preventing whatever damage they could do. But obviously, that's not working. And I love Spider's reaction here. Trouble! Trouble! The mutants are trouble! 63% more trouble than I factored into my calculations! Oh, that's rough, man. I just feel like there should be, you know, Han Solo nearby, never tell me the odds. I guess. Yes. Or Captain Kirk, really. Uh, you know, whichever. Way. Some sort of brash space person. Same difference. And so, once again, this is kind of unclear what happens, because the guards, like, I guess they try to kill the big monster people, but somehow they don't for some reason, and so then the planet's in danger, and they're about to destroy everything. It's really unclear what's happening here. Rain saves Lila by getting one of the monsters to bite off her power-inhibiting helmet and gets sort of temporarily eaten, but it turns out she's okay, and they're trying to figure out what's happening. Gossamer comes in for a little bit more exposition about her race, which apparently they're selfish in vain when they're young, which lets them age gradually over millennia, at which point they can change into creatures that become, you know, gentle, contemplative, and solitary, unless the process is artificially rushed, as it has been in this case, in which case they, you know, eat solar systems. So I guess, you know, if they had hatched under different circumstances, I assume they'd have still been these amazing, spectacular, toothy monsters, but they would have just, like, hung out and done macrame or something. Uh, yeah. Giant macrame. Giant macrame. They could have latched it onto their teeth. But it is really unfortunate and sad, and I wish the story had focused more on this, because Gossamer seeing her family turned into irredeemable monsters by being manipulated by somebody who didn't see them as individuals and just saw them as resources. That's some harsh shit. But she doesn't have much time to react because they are in the process of destroying the planet. Again, the arc makes it unclear how. Now, the plan at this point is that Lila is going to teleport them back because they can't go back through limbo. But no one else can stop the monsters. And so what Lila does is grab them and teleport them into a nearby sun. And so that's it. Lila has sacrificed herself to kill all of Gossamer's family. This is a real downer of an ending. Let's talk about this and why it's technically impossible. Okay, so the deal with Lila's powers as they're often portrayed is she can only teleport to somewhere that she's been before. Now, eventually that's going to change. We're going to learn in Captain Marvel number 9, um, which came out in January of 2015, that she can also teleport to anywhere where her voice has been, which is how she's able to teleport at that point onto Captain Marvel's spaceship. As Captain Marvel listens to one of her recordings, which is awesome, by the way. That is, as far as we know, not the case now. She can only teleport to places where she's been. She can only teleport tremendously long distances. What this means is that A, 
she's visited the sun before. And survived, like so she's it. capable. And B, she teleported them first to the Dyson Sphere and then back to the sun and then didn't bother to go back to the Dyson Sphere and come back and let the new mutants know that she was okay, which she is because she's going to come back eventually. You know, this is one of those things where the story's really better off if you just don't think about that part too hard. This entire issue is better off if you don't think about any of the causality or how people know anything or what's going on at any given point. This issue just falls apart so hard. It's such a shame, too, because the arc, I think, would have been redeemable without it. And, you know, maybe it still is, but it's unfortunate. Now, Spider's still around, the accountants are still around, and Spider blames the New Mutants for what's happened here, for the fact that this planet is, you know, almost destroyed. And Ilyana basically says, look, we do not have time for this bullshit. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to get us out of limbo now, but if I can, this is our real narrow window. Let's go. And so they appear in a limbo entirely overtaken by the techno-organic virus. And there to meet them is the Demon Sim. Welcome, Dark Child, to my infernal realm. Sim. Lord Sim to you, sweetlings. Destiny is everything, and Sim will rule all limbo and beyond. Okay, wait, what? Destiny is everything? What does that even mean? Okay, I have a theory here. Sim's basically been a thug previously. Yeah. Like, he has always been a henchman, not, you know, the supreme dictator. He's still getting the hang of, you know, that kind of villainous pontification. And at this point, he's really just throwing pretentious language at the wall to see what sticks. Does that sound portentous? Sure, let's try that. What would Belasco say? It kind of reminds me of um, that scene from uh, Kill Bill where Bud and Bill are talking. And Bud's like, wait, you mean the bride cut through like 88 of Oren Ishii's best guards? And Bill's like, nah, there weren't really 88 of them. They just called themselves the crazy 88 because... And Bud's like, how come... I don't know. I guess they thought it sounded cool. Oh, if you're going to say it, you have to try to do the voice. That's such a good voice. I can't do the Carradine voice. Only Carradine can do the Carradine voice. Not anymore. He can't. Yeah, well, good point. But anyway, so that's the Gossamer arc. So you've got through Bird Boy. You've got through the Gossamer arc. And now we've got Inferno Watch. Ileana's descent continues. She's falling further and further into the Dark Child identity, seeing herself as more and more effectively doomed, which is going to become very quickly a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sim has gained near full control of Limbo with the removal of the Soul Sword, and we've got our first instances of the possessed machinery and architecture that will soon overrun New York City. And with that, let's answer some questions. Tim asks via email, how does a new writer onboard onto an X-book? It seems like there are a ridiculous amount of prior knowledge needed to write an X-Men character well. I can't imagine they're required to read 60 years of backstory as a prereq, so is there like a character bootcamp or something Marvel puts them through to bring them up to speed? Or is it all on the editor to make sure the plot slash references slash character traits make sense in the big picture? So we are lucky enough to have a direct line to a writer who did a very long run on X-Men and was not previously much of an X-Men fan. That was Kieran Gillen. We sent him this question. Here's what he told us. Uh, he also asked us to read it in his accent, which I am not going to do because I cannot do Kieran Gillen's accent. It's so a you're really just gonna thick have to accent. Imagine. In any case... Kieran writes, there's this handy website called Wikipedia. No, I joke. There are actually several handy websites. I joke again, though using web resources to focus your research is absolutely part of it. I suspect there's no one answer to it. There are certainly writers who've gone and read the whole run of a character before starting. I wasn't one of them as there is so much X-Men stuff. What was important to me was two things. Firstly, the core understanding of the characters and who they were and what makes them tick. For that, you have focused reading. I looked up the important events in their life and concentrated on that stuff. So, for Sinister, I really tore apart the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. The second aspect was the recent continuity. What has a character been doing recently? We are flowing from one place to another. That's the most important stuff to get right, as it's the most noticeable. Characters, and people for that matter, do change over time. My last five years is more relevant than the stuff that happened 15 years ago, with a few key exceptional moments. 
In the case of my run, I basically followed through the events since House of M, which was the last biggest event that was still shaping the direction of the X-Men at that point. So, when writing Magic, I was more interested in her recent history, where she basically risked all reality on a throw of a coin to get revenge on her soul back, than stuff that was further away, which isn't to say it didn't impact on it at all. And, as you suggest, there's also editorial oversight. There's lots of things going on, and they're there to make sure that everything is lined up and to point stuff out. So thank you, Kieran, for that answer. And uh, Tim, I hope that pretty much, I think that that pretty much covers the bases. Kieran did also qualify that that was his specific approach and you see different things from different writers. So your mileage may vary. I mean, the way I do research for the podcast is I just rub a bunch of X-Men comics on my face for a couple hours. That seems to work pretty well. That's why they're all wrinkly. Sorry, Jay. God, this is why we can't have nice things. (laughs) Because you keep rubbing them on your face. You and the cat. Ah, well, I learned from the best. The cat? Yeah. She's not the best at anything. Well, I love from- our cat is so terrible. She is really bad at cat stuff, <laughs> but we love her. Do you know how many times in any given day she tries to jump on the dining room table and just straight up misses more than me? Probably. Well, probably it, it's close. <laughs> okay, anyway, what else? anyway, Sophie fights the 1218 universe asks on Tumblr. If you were to choose four X-Men for your trivia team, who would they be? Uh, so I would probably start with Cypher, and not for the reasons that most people would think, the whole language powers, although those would certainly come in handy. Just, he's a huge fucking nerd. He's a huge nerd, yeah. And, okay, so the thing is, when you're choosing a trivia team, so Jay and I used to do geek trivia in Portland. It was actually run by uh, two people, one of whom was our old producer, Bobby. And what we found is that you want to make a team uh, full of people, each of whom has sort of a different specialty. What we also found is that the main point of going to geek trivia in Portland was less winning than drinking and heckling. Uh, true, yes. Drinking and yelling are, are great things. It's true. But yeah, so Cypher, he's going to have all those super nerdy, super specific, like, Trivial Pursuit Jeopardy kind of answers, so he would be a solid foundation. So, to round out the team, with a frame of reference that I don't know that Cypher is going to bring, I would like to throw on Megan of Excalibur. Oh, because yeah. Because she is, if there is a single Marvel character who is going to get every single pop culture question, it's absolutely going to be Megan. This is this is the girl who is raised by TV. So I've, I've got one more too, actually. Can I throw this in real quick? Yeah, go for it. Uh, David Elaine, Prodigy. First of all, if he's using his powers, he will know everything that everyone else in the room knows. That sounds like cheating to me. That is cheating. Here's the thing. If he is not using his powers because of how they work, he is assiduous about reproducing that knowledge and basically studying and learning stuff organically. Whether or not his powers are on as a result of them or as a result of his compensation for them, he's got command of just a huge, huge, huge range of information. He is likewise a huge nerd, but he's specifically likewise kind of a compulsive nerd. And so I think after that, if you're going to have a fourth member, I would have to go for everyone's favorite slash least favorite living computer, Sage. I mean, she remembers pretty much every bit of information she's ever taken in, which is a lot. But I also feel like she'd be kind of a specialty with technology and biology type stuff because she knows all about mutant powers because she can jumpstart there for some reason. She's got a mean sunglasses game and she knows all about fashion or at least the Hellfire Club variety thereof. So there you go. All right. You make a compelling case, I suppose. I know, I know. It's Sage, but still, she fits. So speaking of people we appreciate, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Some tiers of Patreon support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a range of fictional characters and ridiculous voices. And I believe that this week I have the pleasure of introducing one of my very favorite fictional characters, intergalactic thief and rock star, Lila Cheney, who is here to steal your hearts. I've been through wars and heists and love affairs they'll still be singing about in a thousand years. A little thing like porting into the sun isn't going to stop me. James Sheridan, Indy Sivard, pleasure to meet you. Now let's see what trouble we can get up to. Let's give him something to sing about, something to blush about for the next millennium. Come on, boys. The stars are waiting. 
As the stars await, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and also ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the lead-up to Inferno continues in X-Factor as Beast Goes Blue, the Alliance of Evil returns, Boom Boom fights a sweater, and Warren Worthington and Cameron Hodge finally go head-to-head. As it were. Oh my god, you did that! Womp womp. Anyway, we'll see you next week. (laughs) 